I wonder if any of you here keep a spiritual journal, an account of your ups and downs of the spiritual life. I can't resist sharing the fact that um, my spiritual journal is a bit of a family joke. <laughs> I, in all good faith, some 15 or 20 years ago, I started to keep a daily record of the, my walk with God. There came a time, a few years later, when we were given theatre tickets as a Christmas present. And then when I wanted to use them, a few weeks later, I could not find them anywhere. I looked high and low, turned the house upside down, and I thought, I've lost those theatre tickets, and the day will come and pass, and we won't go to the theatre. One day, I opened my spiritual journal, and there were the theatre tickets inside. My daughters had a good laugh about that. And so Dad's spiritual journal, one that only gets written in every few months. But there were some good entries in it over the years. I look back on it occasionally, although I must confess I don't make any attempt to keep it up daily. Yet at specific moments when I felt the Lord was speaking to me, I remembered to write it up to encourage me. The psalm that Jean read to you is a bit like a spiritual journal. An account of a spiritual progression from the naivety of a simple faith to a questioning in the light of the writer's observation of life and reaching its conclusion in a mature, more settled faith. Which is true of all of us, I suspect, although, of course, there may well be complications. Very few of our Spiritual lives are a simple progression. We have ups and downs and setbacks and advances and mountaintops and troughs of despair. But basically, this is a psalm that, though it was written some two and a half to three thousand years ago, it's so very, very relevant for 2015. Someone once called the book of Psalms Jesus' prayer book. And I'm sure Jesus knew this psalm. And I'm sure he used it as the basis of his prayers from time to time. It will help if you have a Bible, if you open your Bible at Psalm 73, page 586. So we're going to be looking in detail at the way this psalm progresses. So if you want to get up and get yourself a Bible, which you haven't got, please feel free to do that now. <laughs> Psalm 73, page 586. Nick has got a spare Bible there if anyone wants one. You'll see that it's ascribed to Asaph, whom if your Bible knowledge is very good, you will know was King David's chief worship leader. Whether he wrote it or not, we're not sure. It's more likely, so the scholars tell us, that it's part of a collection gathered together by Asaph. And this psalm is a very honest account of this man's spiritual battle, and it's preserved in our Bibles to help us. Sometimes we're not honest enough with one another. I hope we're honest before God and pour out our complaints to God, as so many people in the Bible story have done. And it starts 
with something that's very conventional. Verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's the sort of thing we say and sing when we're in church, isn't it? When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our path. And today we sang, didn't we? Who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love. The Christian life is wonderful. We have a good God, God blesses us, and God provides for all our need, and God never leaves us. Well, says the psalmist, that's what I sing on Sundays. That's what I sing as I lead worship. It's what people expect me to say, that God is good to Israel, and for those who are pure in heart, well, he blesses them. But it was different for me, says the psalmist. I nearly lost my faith. I was saying one thing when I met with the people of God to worship, but in my heart, I was questioning it. I nearly lost my foothold, he says. Very graphic picture, isn't it? We feel sometimes the pathway of faith is like a narrow path. One of those, if you're a keen walker, or if you have been, sometimes when you're walking in hilly country, there's a narrow path, and it's easy to lose your foothold. And this man says, I nearly lost my foothold spiritually. And I can hear some of you saying, yeah, I know how he's feeling. I have a job to hold on to my faith. I'm slipping. I'm sliding. Now, why had this man slipped? What had caused this man's near disaster spiritually? Verses 3 to 12 talks about envying the arrogant, the prosperity of the wicked, people who seem to laugh at God and get away with it. People who sneer and mock Christians. People who are experts in their own field, whether it be science, literature, or whatever, or the arts, or they may be good at making people laugh. They're good in their own field, but when it comes to talking about God, they talk through the top of their head. But everyone respects them because they're famous. They're a celebrity. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. They scoff and speak with malice. The new atheists, they're called, mocking the God of the Christians. Why doesn't God strike them down? Why doesn't God do something about these people who write these articles in our newspapers and magazines and appear on television chat shows? Why doesn't God demonstrate that he's real, that he is alive? But more disturbing, we find our faith shaken, don't we? By men of violence. What does the psalmist say? Verse 6. They clothe themselves with violence. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. People turn to them and drink up waters in abundance, and they say, how can God know? We're aff afflicted, aren't we, by the sight of our television screens of people claiming to be killing others in the name of religion, in the name of God. 
killing those who have a simple Christian faith like ours. I don't know if we saw on the news this morning two bomb blasts in Lahore in Pakistan at churches, killing, uh, first reports say five, later reports say ten, possibly there are more Christians doing what we've done this morning, just going to church and evil men blow them up just because they're Christians. This hatred that's in their hearts, God, why don't you do something about it? We feel like saying, God, why don't you stop these men of violence, these evil men? And the big question is why, verse 13. This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. What's it all about, Lord, we feel like saying? What's the point of being a Christian? Is it really true? Why am I going to church on Sundays? Why am I reading my Bible? Why do I bother to pray? Why do I try to live a good and godly life? Why do I keep myself from evil? When it seems that if you let go of all these things, you prosper, you get rich. People take notice of you. People look up to you. Yet they look down on me because I'm a Christian. People in their hearts are making fun of me. Oh, he's a simple Christian. He still believes all that stuff about God. You can sense the anguish, can't you, this man? In vain have I kept my heart pure. He looks around him and sees evil prospering, violence spreading. And he says, what's the point? What's the point? Was it all worthwhile? You may have come through some tragedy in your own life that has caused you to question the existence of God. We all know people, don't we, who have come through that way. I'm thinking, I've known several people, but I'm thinking particularly of one couple whom we knew very well many years ago in our early married days, 50 years ago, John and Joan. When our second child was born, a lovely, healthy baby girl, John and Joan had a baby, their first. They'd been waiting a long time. I think it was 10 or 11 years they'd been waiting for their first child. But their rejoicing soon came to an end because their little girl was born hydrocephalus and died at just two weeks old. But a couple of years later, they had a healthy, lovely baby boy. David, they called him. We lost touch with them after that. Didn't see them for years and years and years. Then we heard from friends of ours who'd bumped into John and Joan, and they passed the message back to us. And they said to John and Joan, when they met them, they said, how's David? And this must have been about 14 or 15 years later. And they said, oh, haven't you heard? He died of leukemia. And so we met up with John and Joan again after many, many years, just five years ago. In our elderly couple, childless. Why, Lord? Why? 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 Why did you not bless these people with this gift of a child? Good people, Christian people, 
Why, Lord? Why do other people seem to have everything going right for them? And here's a good couple who have suffered one tragedy after another. The wonderful thing is this morning, as part of God's love and concern for us, he's allowed this psalm of complaint to be here in our Bible because he knows that we will be feeling this sort of feeling in our own hearts. Verse 15 and 16. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. He knew, this man, that the thoughts passing through his head were wrong. They were negative. He seems to have been in some sort of position of authority because he said, if I'd spoken like this, what did he say? I would have betrayed your children, your people. He was not wanting to betray the trust other people had put in him. Do you feel like that? You feel that you owe it to your family, your friends, to maintain your strong faith, but it's wobbly. You know, many Christian leaders are going through this sort of problem. I've spoken many years ago to a vicar of a parish church who'd lost his faith, but he still had to keep saying the words, saying the words, because he would have betrayed his people if he'd owned up to his doubts. And this man in the psalm, this writer of Psalm 73, wrestles with his doubts. And the thought comes, okay, I've been sketching in the negative. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it when we feel that we're losing our foothold? And verse 17, of course, is the pivot, the hinge of all this. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Locked in the turmoil of his thoughts, this man suddenly remembers what to do about our doubts. What to do when we feel we're slipping. He talked to God about it. He went into the sanctuary. Now, we've got no more details of that. Whether it was a special service, whether he's talking about the tabernacle, the temple. I don't know. We've all had this experience, haven't we, of being sitting in church and perhaps you're not listening to the words the preacher's saying, but God is speaking in his own way. God is having his own dialogue with you. I've had experiences like that of sitting there in the pew and, and just knowing God is speaking to me. God starts a train of thought and I'm able to quietly pray to God and share with him my concerns. And this man was able to do that. He went into the sanctuary, whatever it was. It might have shut himself away in his room as we are as Christians commanded to do. When you pray, just shut yourself away and pray to your Father in heaven. And my dear friends, if you're feeling like the situation I've been discussing this morning, that's what to do. We shut ourselves away. Sometimes there's a lot of wisdom in the old Sunday school choruses, aren't there? A little talk with Jesus makes it right, all right. A bit simplistic, perhaps, but it's the right, right note to strike. In trials of every kind, praise God, I always find. A little talk with Jesus makes it right, all right. This man entered the sanctuary and he began to see things from a different perspective. He saw things from God's perfect perspective, from the perspective of eternity. 
be still and know that I am God. Don't we get that knowledge that you can't put into words? You're reading the Bible and you think, this is true. Nobody could have made this up. This is God's word. You have a wonderful experience of being still and calm before God and you think God is real. I couldn't describe this moment to anyone, but I know that God is real and he's with me. Some very wise words that someone once said was never doubt in the darkness what you have seen in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what you have seen in the light. When you're feeling down, my friends, when you're feeling discouraged and depressed spiritually, remember the things you learned when you were up there on the mountaintop. Remember the things you wrote in your spiritual journal, if you keep one, a verse of a hymn that blessed you, look it up again and be encouraged. Turn to God's word and read some of the uplifting passages of scripture promising us of God's love that he will never leave us or forsake us. And it's possible to commune with God in the ordinary every day of life. One of the most quoted of all Christians, is a man we know as Brother Lawrence. And his book became perhaps as famous as any Christian book ever written, The Practice of the Presence of God. He writes this good advice to us, how we can commune with God, we can find our own sanctuary with God in our workplace, whether it's at the kitchen sink, whether it's in an office, whether it's in a school, whether it's walking along the road. The most holy and necessary practice in our spiritual life, says Brother Lawrence, is the, is the presence of God. That means finding constant pleasure in his divine company, speaking humbly and lovingly with him in all seasons, at every moment, without limiting the conversation in any way. This is especially important in times of temptation sorrow, separation from God, and even in times of unfaithfulness and sin. We must try to converse with God in little ways while we do our work, not in memorized prayer, not trying to recite previously formed thoughts. Rather, we should purely and simply reveal our hearts as the words come to us. Communion with God, being in that sanctuary of God while you're there in your kitchen in your living room, walking along the street. So everything got into perspective for this man when he started to talk to God and I believe, more importantly, he started to listen to God. The men of violence are going to see their empires crumble, like the Assyrians did and the Persians and the Romans and the Mongols and the Nazis. Everyone who tries to build an empire will find their empire crumbling. Why? Because God had already promised. There in the book of Daniel, I love Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees, has this vision, this dream of this giant statue. And there's a great rock comes. And that rock, what does it represent? Daniel explains it to Nebuchadnezzar. In the time of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that can never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. 
My friends, we are members of an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will never be destroyed, a kingdom that God is building. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're seeing the gates of hell. We're seeing the wickedness of evil men, deluded men. We're seeing the false cleverness. We've been talking about this in Lent group, haven't we? The false wisdom of this world People pontificating about God whom they know nothing about. God is going to prevail. And verses 21 and 22. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He looks back and realizes how wrong he was to doubt God's goodness. He probably started to count his blessings. And what are his blessings? Well, he lists them, doesn't he, in verse 23 to 26. I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Isn't that wonderful? You are always with me. Someone said to me, someone who became a Christian in their middle age, they said, the wonderful thing is, now I'm a Christian, I'm never alone. Never alone. Isn't that wonderful? Promise to hold on to me. Whatever you are going through, whatever is afflicting your heart or your mind, Lord, you are always with me. If you just know that half a verse, that will lift your spirits. I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. Do you know, when we were serving as missionaries in Brazil, coping with the difficulties of a strange culture, trying to communicate in a language we didn't at first understand at all, God gave us this verse from Psalm 139, and it encouraged us tremendously. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. We are held fast, whatever our circumstances, with the right hand of God. So he talks about being always with God, knowing God's guidance, God's counsel. And he's talking about the uniqueness of walking with Jesus. Whom have I in heaven but you? An earth has nothing I desire besides you. There's nothing in this world that gives such deep joy as trusting in Jesus Christ, as knowing a daily walk with him, there's no other experience, no other doctrine, no other creed that gives such joy as this. Remember, Jesus gave some teaching about bread. And at the end, people said, this is hard, this is tough talking, I'm not going to follow this man anymore. And people started to drift away. And Jesus looked at the 12 disciples and he said, are you going away too? And Peter said one of those memorable things, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Wonderful. Who else? What else is there? What is there to replace the joy we know in Christ? This simple joy of knowing we're held in his right hand. And then verse 26, he talks about that inner strength that he has. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you feel that strength within you? When things look black, there's a secret strength that you've got within you. 
Some of you might know my favorite verse from the Psalms. It's Psalm 27 and verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is the strength of your life, my dear brother and sister. Of whom should we be afraid? We meet here this morning, not as Old Testament believers, but as Christians. And our faith rests on an even stronger foundation than that of the psalmist. Our identity, and again we've been talking about this in Lent group, what is our identity? Our identity is as a child of God. It doesn't matter what our educational background is, our social class, our profession, how many university degrees we have, our identity before God is as a child of God. Based on the promises of Jesus Christ, whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and I go to prepare a place for you. Nobody can take that away from us, however clever they may be, however brutal and violent they may be. Christians are dying in many countries of the world today with the name of Jesus on their lips. Christians are being slaughtered for their faith, and most of them are holding fast to that faith in the face of persecution. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And Paul the Apostle said, if for this life only we have faith in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. No, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, this man who'd been down in the depths whose feet had nearly slipped. He's able to say, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, as for me, it is good. It is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This man was determined to share the experience he'd been through, to encourage others. It's a wonderful thing about being a Christian because we're not called to just walk a solitary life with Jesus Christ. We're called into a family. We encourage one another. We share our experiences. We weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And you'll notice, Bible scholars point out that the psalm starts with in the first verse, with the word good. God is good. Conventional spirituality, it's what he's meant to say, it's what he, this man says when he gets up and leads worship or speaks in public, he says God is good to Israel. That's what everyone said. But he's come to a place of a more mature faith. For me, this is personal. For me, it is good to be near God. Someone said there are three levels of belief. There were three levels of conviction. First of all, there were the things we say we believe, whether it's from the pulpit, or in our home group, to our families, things we say we believe. Second level is things we think we believe. Things I might think, yes, they're my beliefs, but when it comes to the crunch, I don't stake my life on them. And thirdly, there are the things which we believe and which shape our actions, which shape the way we live our lives, which shape the way that we 
our attitudes are towards people. And this man has moved from that superficial level of belief, just able to say the right words, and he's moved to a deep faith that holds fast to God even though everything is going wrong. A deep faith that is shaping this man's actions. A deep faith that is enabling him to be a tower of strength to others. I know some of you have come through very difficult times in life. And you have come through with your faith deepened, and we praise God for that. It, we are left with unanswered questions. God doesn't answer all our questions. God demands faith on our part. And again, you will know that one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 13, not the bit about love, but when Paul says, now I know in part, then I shall fully know even as I am fully known. We know in part. We don't know all the answers. We are puzzled. We're still left with some of these questions there in Psalm 73, but we trust in a God who knows the end from the beginning. As for me, as for us, it is good for us to be near God.